following is a message from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information, please visit trinitygracesa.org. Welcome once again, Trinity Grace. So glad you're here, especially if you're a guest. As many of you know, we have been looking at the book of Jonah through the month of May here on Sunday mornings. And we're going to be wrapping up this short series on this minor prophet this morning. We've mentioned each week that this book isn't primarily about a prophet that gets swallowed by a giant fish. Instead, it's about something much more amazing than that. It's about God's limitless mercy and compassion for people who don't yet know his love and grace. And it's about how God will do anything in order to get that message in front of spiritually lost people. As we've worked through the book over the past few weeks, some of you have likely felt a certain degree of tension with what we've seen, with what we've read. This book isn't as clean as we would like it to be. It doesn't always resolve in such a way that all of our questions and frustrations are addressed. It's actually one of the book's intentions to keep us in a certain state of disequilibrium to make us think and wrestle with what we read in Jonah. Some of you have felt tension over the fact that back in chapter one, the pagans seem to become believers without much actual knowledge of who the God of the Bible is. Some of you wondered whether or not Jonah was truly repentant and sorry for his rebellion back in chapter two. Others have felt a disequilibrium over whether or not Jonah was preaching out of a heartfelt compassion and a deep heart change back in chapter 3. You're not alone. This book is not clean. It's not as neat as we'd like it to be. And I'm not sure chapter 4 is going to be much better. The last chapter we're about to read does bring lots of pieces together, and it does help us resolve some of the tensions that we felt throughout the book of Jonah. But as we'll see, it ends in an abrupt and a strange way, and it's intentional as well. Remember, it's very likely that Jonah himself wrote this book autobiographically, under the Spirit's inspiration. And we're confident this is the case because we get details throughout the book that only Jonah himself could have known. And only someone who deeply understands and embraces grace and forgiveness would be able to write this honestly about himself. That's important to keep in mind as we read this final chapter and as we try to bring some resolution to our questions and our frustrations. But as I just said, the end of the book leaves us hanging in a sense. It leaves us with more questions. It gives us an unresolved ending that would not play well in Hollywood. We would not like to see this on the big screen, and it does it intentionally. We'll see that God, through Jonah's writing, wants to leave us with a question. He wants to turn the mirror back on us and ask us what we're going to do in light of God's great compassion and grace towards us in this world. How are we going to respond? To see what I mean, you follow along as I read, and we're going to get a running start by by beginning in Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. It says this, When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. 
Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and set to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? He said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. The Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city? in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. This is God's word, and he gives it to us because he loves us, and he wants us to know him. Gatorade, AT&T, Accenture, Gillette. I wonder if you know what these companies have in common. They all dropped Tiger Woods as a corporate sponsor in the span of a few months because of the scandal that surrounded Tiger Woods back in 2009. For those of you that don't remember, Woods, who's a golfer, was found to be caught in a large web of lies, much of them including unfaithfulness to his wife at the time. And if you follow golf or news in general, you likely heard about the professional fallout that Tiger Woods endured at the end of 2009. And when viewed from a professional lens, rightfully so. And after all, if you're paying someone to endorse your product, it makes business and financial sense that their spokesman would be celebrated by society, would be looked up to by a crowd. It would have hurt the bottom line for these companies to stick with Tiger through all the scandal and all the heartache that he caused. If a celebrity messes up, you likely see the first thing that happens is that endorsement deals are pulled from them. Endorsement deals are lost. Companies don't want messed up people endorsing their products. And that makes sense to us. What often doesn't make so much sense to us is that God works in the complete opposite way. Through the Bible, what we see is that God doesn't endorse people until they mess up. It's because unless they mess up, he doesn't have to endorse you. While we celebrate the grace of God as we think about our own lives and our relationship with him, we have a harder time when we think about God's grace being extended to other people. For example, we've all heard stories of people on death row, right? Who have committed horrible crimes, yet confess Christ in the last days of their life. And if we're honest, that kind of bothers us that God's grace could reach those people. Think of Carla Faye Tucker, who's an axe murderer who confessed Christ on death row, and after being executed, she woke up in paradise. Think of Jeffrey Dahmer, sociopath serial killer, also professed Christ while on death row and woke up after his execution in the presence of Jesus. You don't have to look at our society. You can simply look at the Bible and see that the grace of God reaches folks that it shouldn't reach. Think of David, a sex offender and a murderer 
And it's from his family line that we get Jesus himself. It's his prayers that make up a majority of our Psalms. The grace of God reached Paul, the writer of a majority of the New Testament, who was a mass murderer, a blasphemer, generally a violent man before he met Jesus. He made a career out of hunting down and persecuting Christians in the early first century. If we're honest, we've got a hard time with grace. We don't really like it a whole lot, at least when it's not directed towards us. But I think we can actually be okay with the stories that we just heard because these are people that are distant enough to make us feel okay about it. It's much harder when true grace is extended to those that we know, to those who have heard us, to those who don't deserve God's goodness. You might think of an ex-husband who left you with everything, including caring for the kids all by yourself. And then one day, on top of that, you look up and he's remarried and he's rejoined the church and he's living a beautiful life and he's been forgiven by God and he's walking in grace and things are going well and you stop and think that can't be right. You think of an employer who made every day miserable for you as an employee who was mean and rude and because of him and his incompetence, you lost your job. He was never questioned and he ruined your life for years. And one day he begins going to church, he meets Jesus, and then his career takes off. He finds more fulfillment in his job than you ever have and he's rewarded for it more than you ever will be. And you stop and you think that can't be right. Think of a parent who's left you, who looked at you when you were young and said that he's no longer your dad. And he moves away and doesn't ever reach out and has never paid any child support. And he's never met your wife or your kids, a parent who's completely bailed on your life. And after decades, he reaches back out and wants to start a relationship, wants to make things right and requests a do-over after decades. And you stop and think that can't be right. He certainly doesn't deserve that kind of kindness. We've got a hard time with grace. The closer it hits home, the harder grace becomes. We have a hard time with goodness shown to those who absolutely don't deserve any goodness at all, which is a good definition of grace. Goodness shown to those who absolutely don't deserve any goodness at all. Are you okay that God might love your enemies? Are you okay that God might forgive those that you could never forgive? Are you okay that God might show goodness to someone in your life who absolutely doesn't deserve any goodness at all? Because that's grace. The pastor who visited Jeffrey Dahmer in prison on a regular basis had a congregant in his church who heard of the story of Dahmer's conversion. And at least he was honest when he said, if Jeffrey Dahmer's going to heaven, then I don't want to be there. If grace doesn't rattle us or unnerve us to some degree, it's likely that we're not understanding it correctly. You know who was rattled by God's grace? You know who was unnerved by the grace he saw coming from God to people who absolutely did not deserve it? Jonah. As we read the end of chapter 3, you almost want to throw up your arms and say, there must be some mistake At the end of chapter 3, it seems like we're missing a verse. After Jonah had gone and preached God's compassion to the brutal and bloodthirsty Ninevites, they believe what he's preaching, they take it to heart, and they repent and beg for mercy. And you almost expect to see a verse at the end of chapter 3 that reads, 
And Jonah returned to Israel, praising the Lord and rejoicing over his work. That should have been the ending of the book. But grace is difficult. And that's why there's no verse 11 in chapter 3. We should have ended with chapter 3 and been happy. But we don't because grace is unnerving. It stops us short. It makes us think that can't be right. They certainly don't deserve kindness. At least that's what Jonah thought. He was honest with how grace made him feel, and it leads us right into chapter 4. And I want us to look at two things over the next few minutes. First, I want us to see Jonah's response to God's grace. And then second, I want us to see God's response to Jonah's anger. Jonah's response to God's grace, then Jonah's response to God to uh, God's response to Jonah's anger. You're going to have to work this out in your mind as we move along. First, let's take a look at Jonah's response to God's grace. What would you expect of a professional golfer who makes a 15-foot putt on Sunday afternoon to win the golf tournament? What would you expect of a musician playing Carnegie Hall who receives a standing ovation after a flawless performance? What would you expect from a world-class surgeon after he completes a complicated surgery successfully? Well, I think you'd expect that person to exhibit joy and thankfulness and an appropriate degree of pride in a job well done. That's what we would expect. But in our passage, we have Jonah, a professional preacher, a prophet called by God who just shared a sermon with one of the toughest crowds on the planet. And after hearing Jonah preach, the whole city responds to what they hear with repentance and belief. It's not a stretch to say that this is Jonah's finest professional moment as a prophet, as a preacher. We'd expect him to be joyful and thankful. But in verse 1, we see the response that he got from Nineveh actually displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Because of his preaching success, as you look at verse 3, Jonah even asks that his life be taken from him, saying that after this success, life isn't even worth living anymore. Now, why would Jonah respond this way? What's going on here? Well, there are a few reasons why Jonah's angry and displeased, a few reasons why he's throwing a temper tantrum. First, we see a theological reason. In verse 2, he prays to God and says, I knew you were going to do this. This kind of grace and compassion is just like you. I knew that you're gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. And here Jonah quotes directly from Exodus 34, which Vanessa read for us this morning. It's a place in the Bible where God reveals himself personally to Moses. He reveals himself with the very words that Jonah uses here in verse 2. This is who God is. It's his calling card. It's how he describes himself. Jonah was mad that God had such a gracious character. But why? Why would Jonah be displeased with God's grace? Well, there's a few reasons. God's grace is going to make Jonah's life a little uncomfortable. Think about it. How is he supposed to go back to Israel and tell his countrymen that he's just offered God's grace to one of their biggest enemies? Jonah would have been repulsive to the people in his own country. They they would have despised the fact that the Ninevites didn't get what they deserved and Jonah was responsible. On top of that, his professional life would have been over. 
Nobody's ever going to listen to Jonah again back in Israel. Israel understood the job of a prophet to be speaking condemnation and judgment upon the surrounding nations. They didn't realize that God's grace was supposed to move through them as a channel. Instead of acting as a channel that God's grace moved through, the people of God acted as a repository for God's grace, keeping it to themselves. And they would have viewed Jonah as a failure in that regard. How dare you act as a channel? Don't you know this is just for us? On top of that, and likely what's more, not just the fact that he was professionally ruined, that his reputation was gone, he was angry and displeased because now he might have to call these Ninevites brothers and sisters. He would have to sit at the same table with them. He would have to welcome them as part of the same spiritual family. And this was unthinkable to Jonah. Jonah was mad because he wanted to hoard God's grace for himself and his own people. He didn't want others, especially those who looked different and had sketchy moral backgrounds, to have access to God's grace. After all, they didn't deserve that. What they deserve, according to Jonah, is to be overthrown. Jonah, in this passage, is really throwing a temper tantrum because he doesn't like God's ways. He doesn't agree with God's decisions in his life. He's pushing against the way that God wants to work. And it forces us to stop and ask an application question at this point. How do we push against the way God works in our lives? What don't we like about God's decisions in our life and in this world? Maybe you don't like the spouse that God gave you. Maybe you don't like the job that God gave you. Maybe you don't like the location that God has placed you in. Maybe you don't like the body that God has given you. Maybe you're displeased with the way things have turned out. Maybe you're angry with the life God has given you. And if we're honest, we've got to admit that we all have a little Jonah in us. We're all like Jonah. We know who God is. We've been told that he's gracious and he's merciful. We know that he's slow to anger and abounding steadfast love and that he relents from disaster. We know that he works all things out for the good of those who love him. We know that he's in complete control of our lives and of this world. Like Jonah, we know this at a cognitive level, but we look at his grace and how things have worked out and we're not happy. In fact, sometimes we're angry enough to want to die. What makes someone want to die? Well, that only happens when what's most important in your life is taken from you. When what you value most is lost, when what you find your ultimate significance in is taken from you, it feels like there's not much left to live for. And as we follow this emotion in Jonah, wherever there's smoke, there's fire. As we follow the smoke to the fire, we see that he was living, Jonah was living for his own reputation, his own comfort, his own country and nationalism, his moral superiority. And God, by saving the Ninevites, is taking all of that away and he's ready to die. And we're like Jonah. I mean, we want to put hedges around God's grace too, just like him. We know his grace is free. We know his merciful to the undeserving. We know that cognitively, but we want to put parameters on it. And we do it all the time in really subtle ways as the church. We say God's grace is free as long as dot, dot, dot. God's grace is free as long as you clean up your act. 
God's grace is free as long as you support the right political party. God's grace is free as long as you don't slip back into those old patterns of life. Like Jonah, we look around and think, God's not supposed to behave like this. He's not supposed to forgive the undeserving. I mean, why is it so hard for us to forgive others when they hurt us, when they gossip about us, when they don't respect us the way that we wish they did? Why is it so hard for us to forgive oftentimes? It's because we all have some Jonah inside of us. In verse 5, we see that Jonah went out of the city after they had repented, and he makes a booth for himself so that he can sit and watch what God might do to Nineveh. He goes and he waits for 40 days to see if God might overthrow Nineveh like he promised. He goes and throws himself a pity party instead of riding this wave of repentance in the city of Nineveh, instead of walking alongside the Ninevites and helping them and their new understanding of God, he pitches a tent outside the city and waits for its destruction. He wants a front row seat. And that's when we see God patiently and graciously address Jonah in his anger. Let's turn and take a quick look at God's response to Jonah's anger. We see God respond the first time to Jonah's anger in verse 4, where God asks, do you do well to be angry? You can't help but think, what a beautiful probing question. I mean, God doesn't blast Jonah. He could have done that time and time throughout this book. He doesn't shame Jonah. He doesn't give up on Jonah like he should have long ago, likely. God's engagement with Jonah is in keeping with his gracious and merciful character. God wants to draw Jonah back again and again. God is as concerned with Jonah's heart as he is with the Ninevites' hearts. And God tries to get Jonah's attention with a living illustration, beginning in verse 6. Notice, just as he's done throughout the book, God is controlling circumstances. Which you see it, God pursues Jonah once again by appointing certain things. Remember, he appointed a wind back in chapter 1. He appointed a fish back in chapter 2. And now here in chapter 4, we see that God appoints a plant in verse 6. He appoints a worm in verse 7. He appoints a wind in verse 8. A plant, a worm, and the wind, they all obey God. The only figure in the book that does not obey is Jonah. The only rebel in the whole book is man. God appoints this plant. And it provides shade for Jonah as he throws himself a pity party and waits to see the destruction of Nineveh. And it says in verse 6 that Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Just like he was exceedingly displeased when Nineveh wasn't destroyed. Jonah becomes attached to the plant because it gives him shade and comfort. But the next day, God appoints a worm, it says, to attack the plant and it withers. And then on top of that, God sends a scorching heat, a scorching east wind, and the sun beats down on Jonah and he's faint. Jonah has lost his precious plant. He's lost his comfort. It's been taken away from him and he melts down. I mean, he asks to die once again because he, because what was most important to him had been taken from him. I picture Jonah like a child in the candy aisle of the grocery store. Kids, you likely know what I'm talking about when you don't get what you want. All of a sudden, you throw a fit, break down. We see Jonah doing that here. He throws a flat-out temper tantrum because the plant was taken from him, all because something he loved withered and died. 
And then the payoff comes in verse 10. When God questions Jonah about his sorrow over a plant perishing. He's got sorrow over a plant perishing, but he lacks sorrow over spiritually lost people perishing. The Lord says this, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came up into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Who do not know their right hand from their left is simply a way of saying spiritually lost. They don't know anything about me. And God is asking us, what are we concerned more about than people? What would cause us more concern and sorrow? People perishing or seeing our retirement accounts take a hit? What would cause us more concern? People not hearing about God's grace or losing some of our hard-earned time off. What would cause more anger, people languishing in their sin or the wrong political party winning the 2020 election? These questions aren't meant to shame us, but they're the questions that God is asking Jonah, do we care about what God cares about? We are so prone to get upset about politics and completely forget about the importance of discipleship. We're so prone to grow anxious about the economy, but not really care much at all about evangelism. We care a great deal about a lot of things. It just happens to be the case that a lot of times we're not normally concerned with what God is concerned with, like Jonah here in this passage. This story is about us. God is saying, I pity spiritually lost people. Why don't you? Why are you more concerned for your comfort and reputation and control than you are about spiritually lost people hearing the good news of God's grace and compassion? And it's the question that God leaves Jonah with at the end of this book. And it's meant to be a question we wrestle with as well. Because we're more like Jonah than we'd like to admit. We don't always like God's grace. We don't always follow God's lead. We don't always appreciate God's plans in our lives. We're prone to pout and complain about how God works. Like Jonah, we're prone to set up outside the city, refusing to engage, apathetic, so that we might watch from a distance what happens with our neighbors. Thankfully for us, and thankfully for our neighbors, we've got a better and a greater prophet. Thankfully for us and thankfully for them, God is so gracious and merciful that he comes himself in order to preach his grace to this world. God comes in the person of Jesus proclaiming a message of peace and mercy to his enemies. Jesus comes to rescue spiritually lost people, those who don't know their right hand from their left hand. He comes to pity and to weep over our spiritual blindness. Jesus went out the city outside the city, not to wait for us to be judged, but he went out the city in order to take his, our judgment upon himself so that we might know God's love and compassion. Jesus is our great prophet, and he rescued us even while we were his enemies, and he calls us to respond by moving out to reach our friends and our neighbors with the hope of the gospel. That's our call as a new church community with one another. It's what God has done for us. And as we believe that more deeply, that he's done that for us, it's going to empower us to do it for others. Out of generosity, out of a response of love uh, for what God's done. 
So with that in mind, let me pray for us this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the way that you have sought us out. We thank you for the way that you have saved us. While we were still enemies, while we were not looking for you, you came looking for us so that we might know God, so that we might have a relationship with him. Lord, we confess that we're often concerned with many things, many good things, but things that can take your place in our lives and in our hearts. And we pray that you would refocus our hearts this morning, that you would use even this table in this next few minutes to refocus our hearts on what is most important, a body given for us and blood shed for us so that we might have eternal life and so that we might take that message out to our neighbors. We pray that you would impress that upon us this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.